So what is, what is the secret of happiness? Like right now, what for you would be the secret for you to be happy? What would fulfill your life? I would give you several wishes right now. If we gave you those wishes, what would it be that could make you happy? You could have anything that you wanted. What would you wish for? What would you wish for making sure that this would be the thing that would make you happy? Well, that's a tough question. So I came prepared with some answers in case you didn't this morning knowing this is what we were going to be talking about. I kind of made a list that helps us figure out what these things might look like. How many of you would like to have more success? How many of you would like to have the Bills have more success? Yeah, okay, there's that one, yes, all right. How many of you like to have more energy? Or you'd like to have more money? Or you'd like to have less expenses or less anxiety or less relational conflict and a more overall satisfaction in life. Does that sound pretty good to you? Okay, good, because you're going to love what we're selling here this morning. Or maybe not. My name is Pastor Milo, and we are in this series, this series on the book of Esther, for such a time as this. We are in week seven of this sermon series, and if you haven't been tracking along with us up to this point, you may hear a title like that, such a time as this, and think, carpe diem, seize the day, seize the moment. This is my moment. This is my chance. Take it. And sadly, there are many times in churches, from pulpits around the country, in Bible studies of all shapes and sizes that look at this text, look at this book, look at the courage of Esther and the bravery that she exemplifies, and they read the story in a way that has a happy ending, ties a bow up on it, and says everyone works, everything works out. The queen saves the day. Mordecai defeats the enemy. They in turn throw a big festival. And everyone that comes to the festival, everyone who's on the good team, because the good team wins, everyone who's on the good team has to come out and laugh and dance in the streets. And they, they all get to see and have ultimate pleasure. They found out that they were all satisfied at the end of the story. Everyone was happy and it was all for such a time as this. Here's the challenge for today. What I'm going to share with you from God's Word is the exact opposite of what most of us in our culture would consider and think of as what would bring us happiness. It's going to be a challenge, but earlier this morning there was a group of people who gathered just down the hallway in our prayer room and prayed for this service, prayed for our time in God's Word together, prayed for you that would be sitting in these pews and in these seats knowing that we needed to have a focus that God's Word would speak to us and say to us what it was intended to say and that nothing else would get in the way of what it has. So bathed in prayer, I'm really glad and really hoping that you can grab a hold of what this text actually says and what God actually has for us. If you haven't been with us or if you haven't looked at the book of Esther in a while, let me give you a quick Netflix re uh, recap of where we've been so far. 
The book of Esther of one of only two books of the Bible that has a woman's name or a female's name uh, to it. It opens in the third year of King Xerxes where he gives a seven-day banquet for his people. And at the end of the banquet, the apex of the banquet, he calls on his most prized possession to come out in front of the people, his wife, Queen Vashti, and to be able to celebrate her and her beauty in front of all of the kingdom. But Vashti refuses. She does not want to come out and be paraded around in front of everyone. And so he becomes furious. He issues a decree that she would never come in front of him again. He banishes her from the kingdom. So a a new search begins for a new queen. Many young women were chosen from all around the kingdom, all different walks of life. They were taken and brought into uh, this this, uh, beauty pageant, this uh, beautiful girl, this Jewish girl, Esther, who had been adopted after her parents had passed away by her older cousin, a man from the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. She was a Jew. She was taken there to live in the king's palace. She was placed in the care of Haggai, who made sure that she got all the best treatment because of the king's commands to make sure that the harem was treated well. And Mordecai, throughout this whole process, strictly forbade Esther from ever telling anyone about the fact that she was of Jewish heritage. The book of Esther beautifully shows God's sovereignty. She found favor with the king, we read, that King Xerxes had selected her out of all of the women that were there to become the new queen. Esther always seems to be at the right place at the right time. And now, for such a time as this, because of a plot of Haman, the king's right-hand man, who is the highest noble, the highest executive officer in all of the land. The Jewish people face extermination from the nation, from the country. And Esther had no idea, but she was going to be used as God's provision to save her people. But God had already made a way for their rescue, which leads us to Esther chapter 5. Last Sunday, if you were here, Pastor Brian walked us through what it looked like as we walked into the palace of Esther. As she approaches the king unannounced, which was punishable by death, she walks into the king's palace and invited him and his right-hand man, Haman, to dinner. Haman, the one who had this master, he was the mastermind of this evil plot against the Jews to come to her quarters, to come to her wing of the castle, if you will, for dinner. The king was pleased with such a request. He summoned Haman, made him come into the office that morning, made sure he was ready. And they went together there to this dinner. And they ate and drank at Queen Esther's table that night. After dinner, he offers Esther this offer. Something similar, of really how I tried to start things this morning. Along the lines of the question that I asked you, what would make you happy, Esther? What would make you happy? Whatever it is, I'll give it to you. I'm the king of the largest kingdom in the known world. I have everything that you could imagine, and I have everyone doing my bidding when I tell them to do it. And so I can give you everything. Everything is at my disposal. I will give it all to you, up to half of the kingdom. It's all yours, whatever you wish. What is it, Esther, you beautiful bride of mine, that makes you happy? Anything, anything at all, what is it? And it is yours. And what does Esther do? She freezes. Or so it would seem. This is what Pastor Brian talked about last week. This was her moment. 
This was her big chance. This is where she was supposed to save all of the Jews, all of the Israelites from this, this plan that had been set out against them that Mordecai had warned her about. And she freezes. She doesn't say anything at all. Now, actually, what Esther's doing is displaying an incredible amount of self-control, a high level of discernment for what was going on. She waits she delays her response until they meet again. Then she invites King Xerxes and Haman to return to dinner the following evening. Then, she says, then I will answer the king's question. Then she will disclose the secret to her happiness. And that's where we pick up today. This is the interesting style that is happening, this creative style of writing that we have with this book that is written in the way that it's written. Because what we would expect is as, as the king and as Haman, as they leave the banquet hall, then we would see what happens behind the scenes. There's an entire mini-series built around this of what happens behind the scenes in the castle, of what's going on with people scurrying and everywhere. What are, are the servants doing? What are, what are we going to do so that we're ready when the king comes tomorrow? What will we do so we ask the right questions, so we get what we want from the king so that she gets what she needs from the king? And we don't find that out at all. Instead, the camera turns and it pans and it follows Haman out the door. And we find out what Haman is doing and how he is responding and what he is thinking and doing when he leaves the party. And it's almost as if this question that has been asked of Esther is the question that is on the front of Haman's mind as he is leaving this party. Esther, what is the secret to your happiness? Whatever it is, I'll give it to you. In his mind, he is fantasizing, Haman, what is the secret to your happiness? Whatever it is, I will give it to you. That's what he has on his mind. Here's the main thing, if you don't hear anything else that I say to you this morning. Here's the bottom line. Whatever it is, whatever you think that will make you happy, whatever it is that you desire, chasing or replacing apart from God will always never be enough. Whatever it is that you're chasing, whatever it is that you're pursuing, whatever it is that you think that you can fill yourself up with and obtain, it will always never be enough. Esther chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Happy and in high spirits. He is dancing along. He is clicking his heels. He is swinging off of the light post. He is having a grand old time. High spirits, as I studied through this, as you might uh, consider as well. High spirits might mean he's just in a good mood, or it might mean also that he's in high spirits because of all of the wine that he was drinking there at the party. So he might be staggering down the street. We're not entirely sure. But nonetheless, he is in high spirits. But says here, when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, because that's where he works, observed that he neither rose nor showed any fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Here's what I want you to remember this morning. Pleasure is momentary, and it's always never enough. 
pleasure is momentary, and it's always never enough. Haman, as he is walking, as he's dancing, as he's jumping around mud puddles, I don't know what he's doing, and he's thinking through this question, what is the secret to happiness? Whatever it is, I'll give it to you. For him, it's not just a daydream. Because in many ways, this is the question, this is the leading question that Xerxes seems to ask all the people that are in his inner circle. This is how we got to the spot that we're at. Because there is a certain day of the year he allows his nobles, he allows his leaders to be king for a day, make a decree, make a decision, and let them do what it is that they would do that would make them happy for one day. What is that one day for Haman? That one day happens to be the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the day that Haman had been given permission, once the decree was executed, to plunder all of the goods of the Jews and to wipe them off the face of the earth. This was what he was looking forward to. He had the king's seal. He had all the paperwork that was needed. He had had conjured up this plan for months and months and months. The day was coming soon, and this would be the secret to his pleasure and his satisfaction. Haman is feeling good. He's probably had a little bit too much to eat, a little bit too much to drink. He's probably noticed the queen, Queen Esther, her beauty a little too closely. He's in high spirits. He's pleased with himself. And then he sees Mordecai and his high spirits flip to absolute rage. Pleasure is momentary. And it's always, never enough. Let me read it again. Haman went out that day happy and high spirits. He saw Mordecai at the king's gate, observed that he neither rose nor showed any fear in his presence, and he was consumed, filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Pleasure lasts for but a moment. And we know this to be true. How many times has your best day ever, the best date you've ever been on, the best vacation week you've ever had turned into the worst week you've ever had, the worst date you've ever been on in just one word, just one moment? Just the sight of Mordecai and everything begins to unravel. Just the sight of Mordecai and just the thought that this man doesn't respect him for his position, doesn't respect him because he got there by illegitimate means, and that Mordecai knows that to be true. Just seeing him and knowing that even though the plan is already in motion to eliminate not only him but his entire race from the face of of the earth. Just the sight of this man squashes his pleasure, his happiness immediately. One of my favorite things to do with my youngest, my little boy, is to watch these crazy YouTube videos with, with him. He, he pulls up the, all the time. Maybe you've heard of this group. They are called Dude Perfect. Anyone know who I'm talking about? So Dude Perfect, their rise to fame is about 15, a little bit more than that, years ago. And it was all these crazy trick shots is how they did the very first video I saw in, I think, 2009, 2010 time frame. 
uh, they were uh, in this college football stadium up in the upper decks, and they were shooting a basketball from the way, way up or upper decks into a basketball goal on the 50-yard line, and then they scored after who knows how many times, 300 attempts, I have no idea, but the ball goes, the wind blows it, and it goes in, and it scores. It's unbelievable. And I could watch these videos all day long, which is why they're famous YouTubers, because everyone else can watch all these videos all day long as well. But they have this, this series, the most viral videos that they have is that when one of the guys on their team, he has these silly videos where he turns into what they call the rage monster. And all it is, is put this guy in a room with all types of things in the room, and there happens to be a baseball bat in the room, and he just smashes to oblivion everything that is in that room. Or he's on a golf course, and he misses a golf shot, and he smashes everything into oblivion on the golf course. Insert your situation, and he goes into that situation. It's Christmas Day, Christmas tree, smash everything into oblivion. He is the rage monster. Rage. There's no emotional state quite the opposite than complete pleasure, which is what we see here, which Haman presumes that he is in a state of complete and total satisfaction and pleasure as he leaves this party. And a moment later, the blink of a hot, the blink of an eye, all of a sudden it is turned to rage. Haman's pleasure flies out the door. Some of you, I do, have a dog. There are times you're standing near the door and you open that door and the dog is gone. His pleasure is out the door. Gone. And it is replaced by rage. What is it that Haman is chasing? He's chasing ultimate power, complete an absolute power. But what is it that Haman is replacing? Here, actually, if you look, his anger is what he's replacing. This rage is what he's replacing. We see here, at the end of this verse, he actually restrains himself. He reels it in. He pulls it back. On first glance, if you look, you say, oh, actually, Haman, you did the right thing. You were upset. You were angry. You didn't go after Mordecai. You did not assault him with a baseball bat or any other weapon that was available to you at the time. You held it together. You restrained yourself. But don't be fooled. Because what Haman tries to do here, even though he's filled with rage, he tries to replace it with a hastily thrown together festival or party or banquet of his own. Haman is chasing power. Haman is replacing rage, but chasing and replacing apart from God will always never be enough. Let's take a look at his party beginning in verse 10. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways that the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. Are you getting the list that he is putting here together? If you want to put it in bullet points, he's called together everyone. He's gathered them all together. He's, he's boasting. He's proudful. He's arrogant. He's talking about himself. But here's the list. He's got vast 
wealth. He's got many sons, and in that culture, that's a pretty big deal because each one of them would be able to assume wealth as well. And then he lists all the different ways that the king has honored him and how not only has he honored him, now he's elevated him all the way into the role that he is above all the other nobles, above all the other officials. Then verse 12, it says, and that's not all. I'm the only person that Queen Esther has invited to accompany the king and to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king. The king gets to come along with me as well. Isn't that nice? Tomorrow. Verse 13. But all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew that Mordecai sitting there at the king's gate. Here's the next thing I want you to remember this morning. Satisfaction is a sliding scale. And it's always never enough. Satisfaction is a sliding scale and it's always never enough. Haman gets no satisfaction, he says, from all of these awards, all of these accolades, all of these seats of honor, the banquets, the parties, the people, all the people in the nation are to bow down to him when he walks through, and that's not enough. We do the same thing today with our officials. We do the same thing with people that we want to elevate. We have our parties. We have our banquets. We invite them to come and speak. And they receive attention for all types of things, all type of awards, all type of honors, for all the things that they do. And it will never be enough. Satisfaction is a sliding scale. Because out there in the audience, out there at the city gate, there's someone who will not bow down to him. So what used to satisfy Haman last month or last year or last decade, what used to satisfy him doesn't satisfy him anymore. It's a sliding scale. Sound familiar? That job promotion that you absolutely had to have five years ago, eight years ago, and you got no longer find satisfaction. That new car that you absolutely had to have. The 1991 Plymouth Laser stick shift car. I had it. It was a lemon. Four days before the engine blew up. Didn't satisfy. That athletic accomplishment. That speaking engagement, being asked to speak at that venue that you always thought would satisfy you. That new husband, that new baby, that new certificate that you can display behind the desk. Satisfaction is a sliding scale and it will always never be enough. Because chasing and replacing apart from God will always Never be enough. Verse 14. His wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits. Ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai, what, what's this word say? Have him impaled on it. This is actually going to happen. Like he has the authority to do this. 
I know that there's someone in the cubicle next to you at the office. I know that there's a teacher who works down the hallway from you. I know there's another student that you see on campus, and you think in your mind, wouldn't it be nice if... Be careful. He actually has the power to do this. Have Mordecai impaled on it. Then you can go with the king to the banquet and do what? Enjoy yourself. And this suggestion delighted Haman. And so he set the pole up. Here's the dirty trick. Happiness is an empty promise. And it's always never enough. Happiness is an empty promise. And it's always never enough. What is happiness? Stephen C. Hayes, there's a couple of these guys out there, but Nevada Foundation professor, the Department of Psychology at the University of Nevada, talks about the dangerous nature of happiness or the pursuit of happiness. He says this, I think one dangerous definition of happiness is to think of it as a kind of warm, joyful feeling in your heart that you have so that you can pursue and grab a hold onto for fear that it would go away. He says, I I think it's fun when you have those feelings, but we know and the evidence shows that the more intent you are on having those feelings and chasing those feelings, that it's like a butterfly that flies away the more that you chase it. A definition like this for happiness is emotion-based, and it's driven ultimately by self. And the problem is, and this text is the extreme version of it, that there are far too many quick and dirty ways to chase that and find happiness, but they end up being unhelpful to you and to the people around you. If you avoid the feelings of betrayal, if you avoid the sense of insecurity that comes when you're in a meaningful relationship, and so instead you decide you're going to chase after a detuned relationship that doesn't have to have those things by sexuality or other types of, of craziness that you can pursue, thinking that you would be able to have a relationship outside of intimacy, you're going to find out that it doesn't live out real well. And that what you said was all about whatever makes me happy didn't actually make you happy. You just have one more drink or some other type of even more severe substance use. Yes, it might feel good, but it doesn't live out real well. If you try to escape into some different form of materialism, the right car, the right woman, the right house, the right trip, the right place, the right job, the right praise, all of these things as we just talked about, if you pursue those things, People have done plenty of studies to be able to prove this. And we know this. This is even within our culture, we know this. Over the history of our culture, there are many dangers of trying to define a meaningful life under these type of criteria. But commercial culture, media, is always going to keep telling us and constantly encourage us that if we feel good, we will live well. And they're all too happy, thank you very much, to let us know what the product is that will help us to feel that way, what the exercise equipment is that we need, what the pill is that will help us lose the weight or the trip or the car or the clothes or the women or whatever else you want to fill in that, whatever it gives you this quick shortcut, this quick route to happiness. Look at this passage, folks. Look what it is that Haman has decided will give him and delight him and give him happiness. 
to have his enemy set up on a pole 75 feet in the air and impale on it for all to see. Now get 75 feet in the air. That's pretty big. The commentaries are telling us about, like, I, they don't even know if there were trees that were that large in that area. So maybe this is, is to be able to put a post on top of a building or on top of a wall or just somewhere that gets this elevation up to the highest thing that they could possibly imagine. His wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends, they're all in agreement on this. Have this pole set up. Reach it to a height of 50 cubits, 75 feet. Ask the king in the morning. Have him impaled on it. Go to the banquet and enjoy yourself, he says. And this delights Haman. And he had the pole set up. Why would he do such a terrible thing? Because happiness, what his friends, what his family, what his wife Zeresh is promising him is empty and hollow. And it will always never be enough. Let's, let's imagine, if you will, the next morning that Mordecai is impaled and he is on this. Do you think that that satisfies what it is that he is going after? Is that promise of happiness ever going to come true? It's not. Because chasing and replacing apart from God will always never be enough. And we should never underestimate the destructive and the distorting power of hatred. That's what we see in this passage. The irrational and violent nature of hatred is what makes Mordecai, uh, makes, makes Haman want to see Mordecai hang to his death or be impaled to his death. David Gutzig is a commentator, and he says that their same irrational and violent behavior that made them want to do this is the same behavior that made them hang Jesus on the cross. Hatred. Now, when we look at these passages, When we look through the New Testament, the apostles teach us to look at at how the Old Testament, and why would we look back in the Old Testament Scripture if we are New Testament Christians? Why do we need to look back? Why do we need to read all of this Old Testament stuff, these Old Testament stories, if we're New Testament Christians and we can look towards the future because of what Jesus has done on the cross? Actually, one of the biggest goals we have is when we look at a text like this, or when I come to the pulpit here in a church like this here at Randall, is to help us dismantle the idea that the Old Testament is unnecessary. Or that the Old Testament is just Sunday school stories that teach us good morality. No, all of them lead to the cross. And without them, we don't need the cross. We'd be driven constantly and again and again, week after week, to the work that Christ has done on the cross. His rule, His gospel, His kingdom, His glory. And so what we need to see if we're looking at this snapshot of Esther and this snapshot of humanity is that God is the author of all history. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And He's always been bending it and shaping it and molding it and forming it because He is sovereign to the gospel of the kingdom, meaning that that it's all about Christ and His sin-forgiving, enemy-defeating, kingdom-establishing work there on the cross. And it is He who will judge His enemies, even as He saves His own people. Because just like the people there the Israelites, the Jews that were there under King Xerxes' reign. Sentenced to death is what we find out about them. We too are sentenced to death. 
But different than them, we actually have no one to blame for our death sentence but ourselves. The only thing that's hanging over us is our own sin. Romans 3.23 teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 6.23 we read that the wages are the just reward of sin for our sin, for your sin and mine is death. And what we can do is we can look at a passage like this and we can see the evil desires of Haman. What he looked at, what he pursued, and we can villainize him if we want. But the reality is, is that same sin nature dwells inside of me and inside of you. If not for the purifying work, the restorative work that has gone on inside of my heart and inside of the heart of anyone who calls Jesus their Lord and their Savior. This is the difference, and this is the only difference. This is the good news. This is the gospel. The work that has been done in Christ is continuing to be done through Christ and will always be finished. It is finished. It is complete because of Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. God's only Son provides everlasting life. This is the good news. I was listening to a sermon this week by a pastor named Brian Suave. Never heard of him before. It was one of those wormholes that you find your way into. Talking about this text, he's in Salt Lake City, Utah, and he brought this off the page, and it hit me in the face, and I wanted to share it with you as well. Because what it is that we see here in Esther is this living, breathing, historical echo of the gospel story. It's this echo of Christ's mediating work for us, his, his, the way that he shapes and he molds, and he fights against the enemy. We don't even realize that that's what he's doing. The camera is in so tight on Haman, we have no idea what is going on with Esther right now, but God is at work. And when we see these story arcs throughout Scripture, as we see how it all kind of comes together, how God's planned, what are we supposed to do? It We're supposed to marvel at God's sovereignty, yes. His divine authorship over history, yes. We're supposed to see this whole story and how it all comes together. We're supposed to see all that, but we're also supposed to look back ourselves. So to look back and see the shadows of the cross and the way that they, they look back into history, we always should be able to see the cross in any text that we are looking at. And then in the same way, because of the cross, we should see those shadows start to tip forward in our own lives, in our own generation, in our own time as well. The cross has shadows that tip in both directions, echoes that reverberate over time and over space. We are intended to be echoes ourselves. Jesus said in John 13, 15, after He washes the feet of His disciples, He shows this radical display of humble love, and He says this, I have given you an example. You should do just as I have done to you. This is what love looks like. Or in 1 Peter chapter 2, Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you. You are the example so that you might follow in His steps. And so we look back into the Old Testament and it bursts with all these hints and all these types and all these shadows and all these pictures of Jesus. Yes, but the story is there. that The ark is there to be able to help us to be able to be a type of, of Christian that others can see. A living Christian that they can see. A living story of the Gospel in this generation. In this time. A pattern for us to live by that will instruct our lives as we go through day to day. 
This is how we are to live. This is the way. In fact, this is the secret to life itself. Pleasure is momentary, and it's always never enough. Satisfaction is a sliding scale, and it's always never enough. Happiness is an empty promise, and it's always never enough. Chasing and replacing whatever it might be apart from God will always never be enough. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, as the band makes their way here this morning, let me ask you to consider a few things. If you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, if you've not asked Him into your heart as your Lord and your Savior, you're just here because someone brought you here or you're watching online because you were uh, just listening in and you found your way here for whatever reason. Let us be reminded it's easy to look around. It's easy to see people who appear successful and we want to be just like them. We want what they have, the things that they have, the influence that they have. And you and I believe that individually that we could do more perhaps in the world if we just had their platform, just had their followers, just had their whatever, their charisma, their resources. And we forget. You forget that just snap your fingers. One day later, something happens and it removes them from the spotlight and someone else just steps right in behind. Because why? Because it will always, never be enough. If you're a believer, you're here this morning, you've already given your life to Christ. I want to comfort you this morning by saying don't forget that we live in an environment where people's priorities are way different than ours. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by it. That they are pursuing after goals and dreams they are oriented in a different way from your own. Don't be surprised by it. But in the same lens, don't forget that you've been, you've been told, you've been challenged to be a light in a dark place. To charge out into the world in a rescue mission where you're supposed to be the demonstration of Christ for all to see. And so if you're here this morning and you've never met Christ, let me ask you to pray this prayer. Lord, as I look at this text today, as I hear these words this morning, I can see in myself the selfish desires, the motivations that drove Haman are inside of me as well. I can also see that it will never be enough. The Bible says that Jesus is enough. The Bible says when He died on the cross for my sins that it would be complete and total restoration. So Lord, as the Bible says, I admit that I am a sinner. I believe that I cannot save myself, and I confess my sins to you, Lord, trusting that your gift of salvation is enough. In Jesus' name I pray. If you're a believer here this morning, you might need to pray something along these lines. Lord, I repent of not looking different from the people around me, that my pursuits, my dreams, my desires don't look much different than the ones around me who have entirely different goals in life. Lord, I pray that my life would represent you rather than the enemy.
Lord, we pray that you've worked in this time, that hearts have been pricked. Lord, let us be reminded that never enough means that things will never be complete until you return. And in that, Lord, we know that you say you, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we trust that your will is being done here in these moments as much as they will be done in the moments to come. We trust you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.